Round and round and round we go. Where will we stop? I already know, but you've only just begun. Welcome to Channel 8 and a Half. Hello and welcome to Channel 8 and a Half, a podcast about film, television, and pop culture. My name is Andrew Hanna. I am Joe Galino. Joe, how you doing this week? I am doing well, Andrew. New start, new format to the show. Yeah. As we've normally been doing, when we do episodes, typically we'll do a watch list. We'll talk about three things that we've watched during the week. When we do a themed episode, we go back and forth. This week, we're doing it a little bit different, talking about one movie. So we're breaking it up a little bit, give you guys a chance to watch the movies and then listen to the podcast. And this one, if you haven't seen it, it's been out for a while, although you were probably too scared to go see it in its intended format. Because, (laughs) Andrew, today we're talking about Tenet. So that means that we're going to be starting the podcast in spoilers and then going to no spoilers, just going backwards. Correct. Or maybe we'll just upload it in reverse. (laughs) Or we'll just make it all a jumbled mess. Exactly. Like the movie itself. Oh, look at, I'm already giving away spoilers. Sticking to our promise. So Joe, why don't you give our audience a nice, precise overview, if you can, <laughs> of this film? Sure. I can actually do that very easily because the plot of the movie is not that hard. No, it's not. It's just a James Bond movie. And I'm not the first person to have written that mm-hmm. down or said it, Yeah, but it is. This is James Bond. The plot of Tenet goes like this. There is a megalomaniacal villain with an accent, always important in a Bond movie. A Russian accent, to be A exact. Russian accent, exactly. Russian, Eastern European, vaguely European. It doesn't really need to sound like anything. Just know that it's not regular British English, because very important for Bond. And we're yeah. going to talk about Bond later, too, by the way. Okay. But a megalomaniacal villain has a world-ending device that he is threatening to use unless our protagonist can stop him. That's it. That is what the movie is about. And all the rest of it, the delivery system is where it it, it becomes, I will frankly say, a mess. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree with that. Do you agree with that bare bones layout of the plot? Yeah, because it really is fairly simple at its core, but I think it was the logistics of the doomsday device that yep. really convoluted everything. Also, the motivation of the villain using that doomsday device to me was so over the top and unrealistic that, frankly, that I didn't care because it's a motivation that, and even though we made a joke before, we'll do non-spoilers to begin with and then we'll move yeah. into spoilers. Yeah. The motivation of this movie that Kenneth Branagh, who plays the villain, a Russian oligarch, which... If you can ever become a Russian oligarch, it looks like it's a really good time. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> His motivation for the the use of the world-ending device is just so if I can't live on the world, then nobody can live on the world because he's dying. That's not a spoiler to say, I think, you know, his yeah. motivation for for using the thing that will destroy the world is that he is he has a he has a, pancreatic cancer. Pancreatic cancer. He has a um what's what's it called when a terminal illness. Terminal illness. That's what I want. Thank yeah. you very much. Obviously, I'm a doctor. <laughs> I'm so glad you're not. Your bedside manner would be dog shit. Doctor, am I going to die? <laughs> yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you are. We all are. Get over it, man. <laughs> is there anything we can do? Probably, but ah, oh, sounds like a lot of work. But it is also literally voiced by Elizabeth Debicki, who plays his wife. Yeah. And I sh- we should say before we get into it, go over a little bit of 
the characters and how thinly veiled they are. John David, yeah, see, you're shaking your head, but you know I'm right. No, I'm shaking my head in agreement. It's like, oh God. Agreeing. When the main character's name is literally the protagonist. <laughs> the protagonist. Nolan probably spends a bunch of time thinking, can't find a name for this guy, and was like, you know what? He's named the protagonist. And then he also says, I'm the protagonist in the movie. They all do. And she's like, you're not the only protagonist. I didn't realize until much later in the film when I was beginning to become more frustrated with having to stop <laughs> when you and were rewind teetering the on the film. edge. Yeah, because I, I kept pausing it and rewinding and I'm like, what did they say? And we'll get to that later, like the sound mixing yeah. issue and all that. But it wasn't until I turned on the closed captions that I realized, oh no, his name is literally the protagonist because it would have in parentheses, protagonist says, and I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> they, <laughs> really were, really? <laughs> they, were, they were using the JV team of closed caption people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just like the AV, the AV club from a nearby high school. <laughs> they just pitched a high school kid in a van and was like, yeah. you know how to type? Get in. John uh, David Washington plays the protagonist. He mm-hmm. is a, I want to say CIA operative, but it's never explicitly said. Is it it's ever said that he's a CIA yeah. operative? Okay. Yeah. It's when he's being interrogated in the beginning. He says okay. something about the guy, interrogation guy says something about the CIA, and then he talks about the pill. Okay. So he's a, he plays a CIA operative who gets recruited into this secret shadowy organization called Tenet. Mm-hmm. He then meets, again, uh, a person who... Might work for Tenant, might not work for Tenant, played by Robert Pattinson. He then meets some soldiers who we are never explained if they work for Tenant or don't. Don't worry, that's like two hours and 15 minutes in, so you don't need to worry about them for a while. But the main goal of Tenant, yeah, this, this is going to be the tone of the whole thing, by the way. Yeah, this is a real sarcastic episode. <laughs> Boy, is it. He then gets told about inversion. Mm-hmm. Tenant deals in inverting the entropy of objects to make them go in reverse. Reverse through time. Now, this is where, if you paid attention to any of the marketing of this movie, I don't know if you did, but they were very explicit when they said, no, 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 this is not about time travel. Yes, it is. (laughs) When you're talking about things moving backwards in time. That is time travel. It's not in a DeLorean up to 88 miles an hour time travel, which, by the way, there's plutonium also in this movie, kind of. It's used as a MacGuffin. So maybe they just took... They were like, he, Chris Nolan saw Back to the Future and was like, ah, plutonium. But I don't think plutonium ever actually makes it into this. No, movie. that's the MacGuffin. It, it's just, it's, it's yeah, used it's as more a of the, device, exactly. uh, the, the algorithm that they are after that Kenneth Branagh, Branagh is going to use to destroy the world. John David Washington is told he is going to get plutonium when it, it's really the algorithm. Yeah. And mind you, he probably was thinking, you know, what word is the most fun to be said in a Russian accent? It's the word plutonium. (laughs) As an aside, though, I really enjoyed Kenneth. I like Kenneth Brown a lot. I enjoyed watching him. I love him. Yeah. I like him a lot. And and we'll talk about him a little bit later. And we've said that now like five times because there's so much to this. We just keep going back and forth like this movie. What were your overall feelings about the film? Very, very frustrated because a lot of this movie, what I just laid out, is not said at all to us as the viewer. Or it is, but you just didn't understand it. (laughs) True. And only afterward do you go, okay, I I think this part goes with this and this piece Mm -hmm. relates to this. Christopher Nolan movies get a bad rap for their exposition. Inception especially. There's a lot of YouTube videos, a lot of stuff where it's just Ellen Page and DiCaprio walking around Paris and he's explaining stuff to her and she's asking questions. 
And I really missed that in this movie. Yeah. Because the world of this movie, both A, needed an Ellen Page, and B, it's asking us to care about how the device or the mechanics of the sci-fi premise works in a way that Inception doesn't. In Inception, there's a briefcase, you go into people's dreams, the rules and the game are laid out for us. We don't really need to understand why. In this movie, you do need to understand why. And it's not adequately explained. Well, and I think he contradicts himself in the beginning with the scientist lady who literally only shows up to give him the first piece of exposition, which the first hour and a half of this film is him moving from one person to another, to another, to another, to give him little pieces of exposition. That is all it is in the beginning. It's very much a video game cutscene. Exactly. That I was like, it's this. This is the tutorial level of a video game. But like we've discussed in the past, Nolan's films are very exposition heavy, but understandably so. The subjects he tends to tackle are complex. In this, it felt as though he wasn't even trying to hide it. It didn't feel as though it, he was trying to make it interesting. It felt very clinical and procedural. Like, okay, here, this is everything you need to know to enjoy the movie, and let, let's just get through it together. Whereas. You referenced Inception, you at least had the compelling images of Paris being turned onto itself, the city block exploding around them. All of that stuff was not only interesting, but he was seemingly intentional in assigning maybe the most iconic images from that film to the most dialogue and exposition heavy scenes. So the interesting set pieces served as kind of misdirection. To go back to to what I was saying with the scientists is she literally says, don't try to understand it, just feel it. Which I I laughed at that moment because I was like, okay, Nolan. Such a cop out. That's the thing is he's telling us this and I would honestly be somewhat okay with it because every time I try to actually think about how the inversion works my mind starts to hurt and I'm like wait but that doesn't make any sense and Mm -hmm. it all kind of falls apart or maybe I'm just missing something and so I would have been okay with that premise of just feel it don't understand it that's all right but then why do you keep trying to explain it to me yes because every time you explain it to me I'm going to try to understand it if you really just wanted me to feel it then don't continue to overload me with just information and trying to tell me how it works when you don't think that it really matters for me to understand how it works and to just again feel it and so that was where my frustration was is there's a contradiction in how you want me to experience this movie and he really does emphasize the fact that he wants this movie to be an experience yeah furthermore it was just like i said clinical and procedural with very little emotional substance like i don't and I'm not talking about emotional heartstrings as what I need. I just, I, I didn't care much about anyone. It felt as though I was supposed to care about the protagonist because of that reason is that he's a protagonist mm-hmm. and that he wants to save the innocents. Like in the first scene, you know, when, when they notice that they're putting bombs and this is, I mean, it's in the first five minutes. They're, Opening scene. Yeah. They're putting bombs in the audience of an opera house of an opera house. And so he's like, okay, well, we need to get those bombs out. And one of his team members are like, well, that's not our mission. He's like, it is now. And it's like, okay, you're you're trying to make him feel like uh, I want to save the world. I want to save everyone. Cats have been saved. That's the bare minimum of humanity when it comes down to it. So really, should I really like him? I think Robert Pattinson, I, I think I just like seeing him on screen to where he I just can't. good. He was so good. He was so charming and fun to watch. Like, man, was he? He is very good in the indie films. And if he's going to continue to do blockbusters like he was in, in the beginning of his career, this is really where I want to see him because he is so much fun in this type of thing. He's cheeky. He's charming. He pulls off the whole both well-dressed and kind of messy look. They should give him Bond off of this movie. Uh, yeah. I, now yeah. they won't. Because he's going to be Bruce Wayne in the upcoming The Batman Oh, that's right. So you can't be Bruce Wayne and be Bond. You just can't do it. 
But man, watching this movie, Pattinson would make a great Bond. To be fair, John David Washington is giving a good performance in this. Oh, yeah. He is an action star. He should be in action movies. And he's he's a movie star in the very traditional sense that we've always talked about. You know, when we were thinking like, oh, who is a movie star? He looks like he's playing his father. Pretend. Yeah, well, yeah, well, that too. But that's that's natural. We could all say that we we're all playing our fathers. But... He is Denzel Washington's son, by it's... the way, for those who don't know. Yeah. And it's his acting style because it is very... It's, it's the very, way he walks. The way he walks, the way he looks away when he says a word or something. But yeah. but it's also the fact that it, he is putting on a show. It's acting for entertainment, not acting for the sake of realism. or and I'm realism. Exactly. And so I'm okay with that because I enjoyed it because he looks like he's having fun. Yes. Everybody in this movie looks like they're having a blast. Mm -hmm. They're yeah. on boats and they're in... Wherever they are, like Monte Carlo, or it's not Monte Carlo, but whatever it's, it is. Uh, it, Vietnam, which... No, they went to <laughs> at Vietnam. At one point, yeah, yeah. They went to Vietnam, they came back. I don't think we went They're to Vietnam. They're in Italy, I think. Um, they're in Italy, whatever. Yeah. Monticello. Doesn't yeah. really matter. It's very beautiful boats and very beautiful people looking very beautiful on the screen. Yeah. Even Michael Caine shows up in a very nice suit for one scene. <laughs> Everybody looks great. I think that is as far as we can go without going to spoilers. Kind of. I mean, at the same point, even if we went into spoilers, I don't think it matters with this movie because it's so sloppily written from a structural standpoint that so many things get introduced so late that it kind of almost doesn't matter. And in a movie like this, do you honestly think the Doomsday device is going to go off? Do you think the Russian no. oligarch wins? A lot of these movies, we know that how it's going to end. That's, I mean, that's the truth of the matter. Yeah. It, we all know how it's going to end. However, it's the manner in which we get to that point, And this felt like we were waiting for this climax, which by the way, the climax was what? Incomprehensible. I don't even, and mind you, I watched this yesterday. I rented it on iTunes. I watched it yesterday. And then I was like, Maybe this is one of those, and I don't believe in those types of films. Maybe I need to watch it twice to really appreciate it. And I don't think that you should have to watch a film twice, although I do believe that some films, good films, are more enjoyable Can every time enhanced. you watch it. Exactly. In the way that Edgar Wright's films are. However, I watched it a second time and I was like, okay, yeah, I mean, now I have the subtitles on throughout the whole film, so at least I now know what they're saying, and now I understand why things are happening because the first time I watched it, I was like, what are they even saying? And why are they doing this? I, but however, I like, I didn't come out of it as though I was like, Oh, I don't know what just happened. No, I, I understood it. I, I felt as though I understood the gist of it. And that's not how I want to feel when I walk out of a film. I pieced together the actual, why they're going from A to B and B to yeah. C, but the way that they do it seems like it's, it's very convoluted. And there are so many other things that they could have done. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a point in the movie where they go into what's called a free port, which is a essentially a hangar inside of an airport that rich people use to store valuables. In the, this case of this movie, it's a forged painting, but anything that you really want to store. And the point, the reason why rich people use these free ports is that they are free. They do not need to go through customs and therefore they are not taxed on any of the stuff that they're bringing in. In order to get the painting out of this warehouse, in this airport, they decide to crash a plane through the side of the building. It's a great visual. It's really cool. <laughs> there are a lot of other ways that you could figure out to get that painting out of that building. Okay, so I was laughing so hard when Robert Pattinson presents the idea to John David Washington and says, we need to drive a plane into the building. But I know just the guy 
and we turn the camera and it's a Middle Eastern man. <laughs> and I was like, no, come on, guys. He was very funny when he said, oh, no, it's not going to be in the air. Don't yeah, worry. Don't, don't be, be dramatic. <laughs> We're just going to drive it like a car. Oh, God. You guys could have picked anyone else. Oh, it was so funny. And the entire reason why they're going to get that painting is because, like I said in the beginning, Elizabeth Debicki, who was an art curator, sold a or approved a forged painting that Kenneth Branagh bought. Mm-hmm. And so in order to get a meeting with Kenneth Branagh, John David Washington needs to go and get a meeting with him. He first meets Elizabeth Debicki. And there's a lot of this going to one person, to another person, to another person, to another person in this movie. She says to him, okay, well, if you want to get a meeting with him, I he's has lever, he has leverage over me involving this painting. He's forcing me to stay with him. I don't want to stay with him. I want to get me and my kid out of there, steal this painting and get rid of the evidence. That's it. But even that wasn't that clear. Having no. watched it twice. Oh, no. because I, had to, I had to put this together like, like a damn Spider-Man yarn wall. Initially, that was a motivation to go to the airport. But also the other thing was like, okay, well, is the reason why they're going through all this trouble, not only to d- destroy the, the painting, but also because they thought maybe he would have other valuable objects in there, which they end up finding. Yeah. No, which we all yeah. knew that, that they would. That's not really a spoiler. So I, I wonder if that was the initial motivation as well or i i know that he was trying to get a meeting but it's still it's it's not clear it's never yeah yeah now that action scene is where we are first introduced to the idea of inversion and there's a a really in a person at least in in a person and that's this is where again the confusion of how inversion works i think really starts to take hold is there's an action scene where pattinson and john david washington they break into this Freeport, this warehouse, mm-hmm. and they fight a masked person who is going backwards through time. And it's it's John David Washington going forwards and this masked person going backwards. And it's a really cool visual. And it's I thought it was in a vacuum really cool to see. And that's a cool idea. And I think it is, that yeah. is that is I'm going to use a Christopher Nolan pun. That is the inception of this movie is mm-hmm. seeing those two things, one moving backwards, one moving forwards collide and that's interesting right i can see why he made this film yes around this concept however in the action scenes in that scene at least i didn't feel as though i was like oh i'm not sure what no it, i i got it i understood it it was later on when they re-implement it in like the car chase scene where i was like wait a second but and uh and so every time i tried to think about it i was like it's either i'm too dumb or they didn't explain it enough or no, they're, they're over complicating things so that they can cover up the plot holes and you wouldn't ever notice it i have a theory about how this movie could have been m- m- clever i think but also much mm-hmm. more watchable later on do you want to get into spoilers i was about to say yeah let's, let's get it. into spoilers time codes in the description we are going into spoilers from here on out did you realize that it was going to be them the whole time They're always fighting themselves, unless they're not. But most of the time, they're just fighting themselves going backwards. In the Freeport scene, John David Washington is fighting himself. This movie trained me to believe that anytime someone is masked, it's just them. Because everyone wears masks all the time, and it always ended up being they're fighting themselves. Even in the very beginning, in the opera scene, it's Pattinson who saves his life in the beginning. So, And and again, thinking back on it, I go, oh yeah, it's going to be him. That thought crossed my mind, although we hadn't yet been told that if they come out together, they're the same person. It was obvious that something was up in the moment that Pattinson pulls off the dude's mask and then lets him go. 
but I really didn't think about it too much in that moment. I think more so the backpack guy crossed my mind as being John David Washington, Mm. but I wasn't surprised when I found out that it was him. Like it just made sense. Yeah. You know, all, all the times in which we find out that really, you know, whether it's, it's cat, is jumping off of the boat and that was the woman that she was going to see like the all those moments didn't feel as though they were a big twist or a big surprise they were just like oh okay that's fine like i i liked it it's not like i was you know oh no you could see that coming but at the same time it wasn't anything that could carry the film or make it seem as though the muddled sequence of events could be redeemed yeah. by those twists it didn't make you appreciate anything you just went ah, oh, yes okay this is still yeah. convoluted yeah. By exactly. the way, Cat is Elizabeth Debicki's character. I failed to mention any character names when I was describing this movie because really who cares? Yeah. I'm just gonna, I don't think he even cared. <laughs> I don't think so either. One of the guys name is named the protagonist. You know what? We're just going to use the actors names. And speaking of the characters, it really did feel like characters were popping up out of nowhere oh, and then poof in thin air. Especially in act 3, Aaron Taylor Johnson's character. Ives. Sure. Is, that is that his name? The soldier. Yeah, yeah. He pops up out of nowhere. He's given no explanation again to as to why he's there. He pops up in Act 3, and he's a major character at the end. Mind you, when he pops up, I was just like, wait, has he been... Have we been introduced yet? Like, it it was one of those things where it was like when someone walks up to you at a party and is like, hey, Andrew, how are you? And I'm like, yeah, what's up, man? (laughs) You? That's how it felt half the time. The scientist who shows up for one scene. Clemens Posey, she's in things. She is. She's in Harry Potter. Oh, yeah. uh, She's Flora Delacour. Like, Mm -hmm. she is a recognizable face. Yeah. She's in it for one scene. And I think that scene especially that she is in leads to a lot of the confusion for Inversion because she describes Inversion to John David Washington with bullets. And she goes, oh, these bullets have been reversed. Now, the way that Inversion is explained to us at the end of the movie, it seems as though the entire thing, all of it, the bullets and the gun need to be inverted, even the person. But in the beginning, it's just the bullets. So wouldn't that gun have had to have been fired already? Again, this is where I don't think it's clear. And that's what I was saying when I was watching it. I was like, for John David Washington, the protagonist, to be able to pick up the bullet from the table by just hovering his hand over it, he would have had to do that while being inverted himself, I think. He would have had to drop it before. He would have had to be the one who dropped it. See, that's what I thought. But then I, you know, I was, I was presenting that idea to Christine, and she's like, no, it's because it's the object. And then with the object, you probably just need the intention. But that still doesn't make sense to me. And, and in that scene, too, he goes, oh, I get it. Instinct. But it is an instinct. No. Because it's the yeah. exact oppositely presented at the end of the movie where it's you know, kind of like the third Harry Potter movie, speaking of Harry Potter, where everything's already happened. You mm-hmm. can't change it's the loop. Yeah. It's loop. So yeah. he can't have just instinctively said, I want to drop this bullet unless he already did. Well, that's, a, he, but he would have already had to have done it in the past, in the past, but while inverted. Or in his future while inverted. Exactly. So that, yeah, that's the thing. Even See, with the driving scenes, I was like, okay, well, is he putting the car in reverse? Why is he going backwards? I thought that too. And then also the whole thing with the algorithm. Yeah. He throws the orange suitcase and then throws the actual algorithm piece into the car. Right. Wouldn't it have been in the car as soon as he got into it? Because it would have been already happened. It would have been, Yeah. Because it goes in and then flies out and then the car flips and the guy comes out and he says, oh, I knew it wasn't in the BMW. So that whole scene makes absolutely no sense to me. No. I have no clue what is going on. And then it explodes 
but then the explosion turns to ice because, oh yeah, when things are hot, the opposite of hot is cold, you see. That doesn't make any sense. No. It doesn't make any sense because it would have had to have been ice first. Right? Yeah, you In can't order just say the opposite it. of things, like the opposite it's of hot is opposite cold. world. No, it's not. Maybe that's what he means to say by it's not time travel. It's just opposite world. <laughs> <laughs> like, it just, and then the whole lungs thing, like, I don't, <laughs> what is happening? I'm just imagining the 30 Rock episode where they go, opposite. <laughs> yeah. Because that's kind of what he did in this movie. Yeah. He just kind of went in the middle of the script and was like, ah page 55 opposite nolan why why is this page upside down opposite <laughs> am i the only one who's just completely confused because I, I, no. I felt dumb i felt dumb afterwards i didn't feel dumb because halfway through i just didn't care anymore and i realized <laughs> just gave up. i gave up oh i walked away i just took my ball and went home i was like Psh. you gave no. up like Sater gave up on his life <laughs> oh 100 so at that point I, I was just going this isn't gonna make sense and it's not presented in a way that I think is coherently or even done well. And this is where I wanted to get into how I think it could have been made in a way mm -hmm. that made sense. And I don't think it's fair to play the, well, this is what should have happened and it would have made a good game. But kind of halfway through Act 2, or even really at the midpoint, what I thought was going to happen was, and this is a preconceived notion I had of the movie too, I knew that yeah. it was about time travel and going backwards through time and sort of like walking like people walking backwards as up yeah forwards yeah. i was like oh tenant that's a palindrome the way mm -hmm. this movie is going to be structured is they're going to move forward through time through the movie at regular regular forward momentum then halfway through we're going to replay the entire movie going yeah. backwards and everything is mm -hmm. going to piece together and make sense and we're going to understand again in that harry potter and the prisoner of azkaban way that oh, you know, this person was actually here the whole time too. Yeah. You know, all, all no, those pieces are going to fit together, but that's not ended, ended up what happening. No, I think that's I completely fair because when I first saw the trailer, I was thinking that as well. I was like, okay, that makes sense. Just knowing that the, the whole basis of the film is a palindrome and it is kind of in that it ends it, on it the day that it begins, but it... <sighs> Even then, it's just it's and I would have been fine with being confused in the first half because that's how Nolan works. Right. We've talked about this before. Nolan is OK with making you feel a little bit unsure of what's going on. Even then, while they're explaining things to you, you're still picking up pieces of information. Whereas this, I didn't feel as though I knew what was going on at any point. No. I always felt like I was missing something. And that is not an enjoyable experience to me. I don't want to feel as though I'm now committing to multiple viewings of this film in order to really feel like I watched it. And by the end of it, yeah, sure, you understand. But like what I said earlier, it felt like a gist. It felt like a fart in the wind. And I was like, okay, yeah, I understand in theory, but I don't feel as though I really grasped it necessarily. Well, as an example, right, Elizabeth Debicki's character is being forced to stay married to Kenneth Branagh, like I said, yeah. because he's she's she so she was having an affair with the person who made a forgery of a goya drawing and she's an art what's it called a curator. art curator who can appraiser more appraiser really. yeah she really tells you okay if this yeah. is a real or it's a fake and so she verifies it as real and then her husband Sater, ends up spending nine million dollars on it and then when he finds out that it's fake he's like i'm gonna put you in jail if you leave me see this is where I made some stuff up in my head because in my mind, she really wouldn't go to jail for just appraising a painting that's a forgery as real. 
she would ruin her reputation in the art world. But I, I imagined that she was complicit in the forgery so that she would then go to jail. Like she had to be complicit in, in him buying this that's to me because then, because her whole motivation is her kid, right? Yeah. The whole thing is I want to get out of here because I want a better life for my kid. If she was complicit in the forgery, then she would then go to jail. They take the kid away from her. Ah, fair enough. Great. I understand that. This is just like, eh, I'm a bad appraiser. Why would he hold that over her? Why would that have to do really with anything? Well, yeah, that's the thing is the first time that I watched it, I thought that, yeah, she was complicit. But then when I the second time I watched it and she's having that dinner scene with the protagonist, he asked her, did you know that it was a fake? And she says, no, but Seder yeah. can't conceive that it could be a, a mistake. It was more of a betrayal. And so that whole motivation to keep her around the second time watching, it, I was like, OK, maybe he wanted to keep her around. Not because of that, because there's no way there's no way that Christopher Nolan was okay with saying, if I can't have you, no one can, which is something that literally Sater says. He says that in the movie. In the movie to her face. And I'm like, what? And then I was like, no, 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 no. Nolan wouldn't do this. Maybe it's because he knew that he would have to use her as bait for the protagonist but even then he didn't realize that he was going to have her there so it just it, it falls apart every time you cross a certain threshold of trying to justify an action or a motivation you fall off the edge of the cliff because oh, you're yeah. just like no it just doesn't it stops here i can't go any further because then all these other things would have to be true and it never told me that those things were true so, uh, i just and then when they're on the boat together and she essentially tries to kill him by knocking yeah. him off the side of the boat. That well, why didn't you try that before? <laughs> if, if, if you were completely okay with just bashing a dude in the head off of a boat. When Washington tries to turn the boat around, she doesn't say, no, just leave him. No, she says, you can't handle a boat like that. <laughs> and he's like, he's like, only if you need to. And I'm like, wait, what? So I wasn't sure, like, was she trying to mess with him or is she trying to kill him? And then later on when they're back on the yacht, she's like, why did you save him? And I'm like, why didn't you have that reaction in the moment? Right? It just, it doesn't. <sighs> and then, and then Rana reveals to her in a very dramatic Russian oligarch fashion that he has the painting. They didn't get the painting. He still has it as well. Oh, yeah, when it's on the platter. <laughs> on the platter. Why didn't she just take it and pitch it over the side of the boat? Yeah. Problem solved. Yeah. Everybody wins, except for the Russian oligarch. And even then, getting rid of the painting would not really do anything, because I'm sure he has receipts. It was at an auction. Oh, yeah. And, and okay, maybe you'd have to have the painting in order to be able to... Verify. Verify whether or not it's real or fake, but... Even then, like you said, you just chuck it off the side of the boat and you're done. That's it. Mm -hmm. I did enjoy. Now, we've, we've bashed this a lot, and I think justifiably so. Yeah. If you look at it in individual moments, I really enjoyed it. See, this is the weird thing, too. When Christopher Nolan gives interviews and he's like, don't think about it, just enjoy it. And I'm like, you've made a movie where you're making me think about the mechanics of the movie, so you can't say that. But like I said before, the individual scenes of the backwards hallway fight the reveal that Pattinson rips off the guy in the hallway's mask and it's yeah. John Washington. I was like, ah, fun reveal. We've set that up before and we've paid it off now. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. The part when they're in Mumbai and they reverse bungee jump sky yeah, yeah. That was that cool. And, yeah. That was a cool scene and that's fun. And I really enjoyed the interplay between John David Washington and Robert Pattinson. Yeah. And I liked having them together. Like every. Mm -hmm. Like I said before, everyone looks like they're having a lot of fun. And Pattinson's yeah. really funny. And his his reveal at the end where he says, I've been going backwards in time. Like, we're actually really good friends. We've known each other. We're going to have yeah. some adventures, man. But you still got to yeah, yeah. 
he does like the whole Casablanca. I think oh, this is the yeah. end of it. I was like, okay, I'm okay with this. I was like, this is good. Addison, I like this. Yeah. Because essentially their relationship, you don't really watch Doctor Who, but there, there's a, an ongoing relationship between mm-hmm. the Doctor, even in his different forms, David Tennant, okay. Matt Smith, Peter Capaldi, and then a character named River Song, who's played by Alex Kingston, who stays consistent. But the very first episode that we meet River Song is exactly this relationship. It's exactly the end of this as... River has, and the doctor have had this relationship. They have all this history that she knows, but this is the first time he's ever met her. So it's mm-hmm. a really cool, and it's considered one of the best episodes. It's a two-part episode written by Stephen Moffat. It's considered one of the best episodes of Doctor Who, and it does this story in an hour and a half much, much better than Tenet. And it has such a heartbreaking ending, too, because I'm going to ruin an episode of a television show that's like 10 years old at this point. River Song actually dies in that mm-hmm. episode. And it's really emotionally impactful. Well, I mean, technically, Robert Pattinson dies in this, too. He does, exactly. Mm-hmm. He sacrifices himself. For- Which I thought was really cool. I, like, that whole scene where he kind of reverses into the bullet to the head, I was like, oh, that's really cool. I really like that. Individual moments of this are really cool. But yeah. it just doesn't work big picture. I think because he was contradicting himself in the way that he wanted us to experience it is that he wanted us to feel it out but he was also explaining too much of it to, to the point where it was like you, you gotta ask me to do one thing or the other because i was reading an interesting article about the flaw in that thinking because we process emotion in a different part of the brain than when we problem solve so when you're spending this much time explaining you're taking away from the very thing that you're trying to achieve because we're too busy taking in all of the information you're presenting that we aren't able to quote unquote feel it out in the way that you want us to and it's really just an old school way of filmmaking is like just accept it like the delorean did we ever try to understand how the delorean worked it's a magic no DeLorean. all you needed to know was 88 miles per hour and boom you're done that's all we needed to know and if he just really stuck to that premise of feel it don't think I think this would have made a very great and interesting film. And I just, I think it fell short when it came to that. And look, when, when we say it's not a good film, and I I would, I would say that I can probably speak on your behalf as well, is that we're not saying that this is a bad film when you're looking at film in general. I think this is still a great film. If you're comparing it with other things that are out there right now, comparing to Avengers age of Ultron, exactly that type of stuff. But if you're going to critique it against Nolan's self or Nolan's own work, this falls to the bottom of the list. And this is like one of those moments where it's like, dude, I know you're better than this because this concept is really cool. And I wish you just did it a little bit, a little bit better. Do you think this is an overcorrection for Interstellar? Because Interstellar is what you were just saying, a very much a feel-it-don't-think-about-it movie. Maybe a little bit too much. Yeah. Now, more than likely, Nolan was thinking about this movie apparently for 10 years. He's been trying to write this movie for 10 years. He'd obviously made Interstellar at that point. So he'd had the kernel of this idea already. And you know what? That is probably where the problem lies. I think so too. He's had too much time to think about it because honestly, I think we could have accepted all that BS of the logic not really lining up if the characters were just that much better to where it didn't matter. I'm just enjoying it. Make me care a little bit more. But if you're just making this all clinical and the science just doesn't match up, then what do I have? Exactly. This movie isn't about anything other than what it's about, meaning exactly the plot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Inception at least had, you know, the nature of fathers and sons and, you know, continuing on a legacy and things like that. Interstellar had an emotional core to it. 
outside of the wormholy time travel mechanics, even something that's very cold, like The Prestige. And I would say Nolan previously has been a very cold director. I understand that that's what he's identified as, but I really don't necessarily agree with that. I think that his films, the characters themselves are very emotionally driven. Everyone's motivation in Christopher Nolan's films oh, yes. are based on very strong emotional driving forces. So to say that it's cold, sure, the presentation and things like that, but in sure. the end of the day, you feel like, oh, they have heart. They're doing this for a reason. This, I can't tell you what John David Washington's motivation was other than to just be a good guy. Because he doesn't, nobody ever tells him. No one, yeah. He does not ask any questions. He just very easily goes, hey man, uh, you're going to work, for, you, just go do this now. And he's like, all right. Here's the other thing is that you're completely right in that half the time, no one's telling him to do anything, although he is our entryway, because when he first meets the guy on the boat and he says, welcome to the afterlife or whatever it is, he just gives him two words, tenant and a gesture, which I still don't understand the gesture. The code I, phrase was also like, we live in an upside down world or whatever that was. That was, that, that was the CIA thing. That's true. That was his CIA. Yeah. They should have picked a different code frames because that's really i don't think that was too i don't think that they ended up carrying that later on no. i think you, you just have to say the word tenant because when priya said tenant he's like well if you care about tenants so much then she was like okay no nah, he's in on this but i mean true he never said go to this place mm -hmm. he just climbs into a windmill which i don't still don't know why he climbed into the windmill and then got onto a boat and then got into a car that someone else literally just got out of and i'm like does he know him? How does he know where to go? He barely knows Pattinson. Pattinson just keeps showing up and being like, come on, man, come this way. Half the time, the exposition is not only peppered throughout, like they literally just had him go from person to person to make it feel like the movie was moving. There was some sort of like forward momentum. But even then, half the time, they're just asking him, do you know what this is? And, he said, and then he, he explains it back to them and then they cut him off and then they finish his sentence. Yeah. And it's like, this is a conversation. <laughs> this felt like a group project presentation in high school. Like where everyone's standing in front of a class and they all just take turns talking. And furthermore, it was like, okay, at least Nolan showed you the emotional driving force. Like he showed you Matthew McConaughey hugging his little girl and the feeling of him driving away from her in the cornfield while she's running after him. Like that is a very strong emotional force that can carry you through an entire film without ever having seen them interact again. With this, the emotional driving force is also delivered through exposition when he says, the world is going to end. And then Kat literally says, along with my son. And it's like, dude, show us that, you know, before they go on the mission, maybe have her hug her son and give him a kiss or something. I like, I just felt nothing. When she got shot and yeah. he had to then go back and save her. And they say to John David Washington, they go, you're risking the mission. You're risking humanity. And he's like, I don't care. And I was like, <laughs> the world's at stake, man. Sorry, Elizabeth Debicki. You got to check out on this one. Well, and not only that, but it's like if he fails, Elizabeth Debicki dies anyway. Exactly. So, <laughs> so just, like, where's your, like, I just want to be the good guy. Like, you know, it just, oh, God. Honestly, I would say the only emotional beat that I really did like was when she became the woman that was jumping off of the boat. He didn't explain it. He didn't say that, you know, oh, my God, it was me the whole time. No, it was that moment was beautiful and very gorgeously shot. Oh, yeah. Beautifully shot. And Debicki is she's phenomenal. a really, she's a really great actress. Yeah. When it, she like, isn't painted gold in a Marvel movie. Oh, yeah. There's, oh, yeah. There's a movie in Guardians of the Galaxy 2. She shows up for a little bit at the beginning and the end. Her entire character is basically if they just said, you know what we're going to do with you? Turn you into an Oscar statue. Oh, like, like mother? 
Yeah, kind of. I was like, wait, she wasn't in Raised by Wolves. More shiny. Ah, okay. But she is. She's very good in it. And she's a great actress. And I loved that she towers. Oh my John God. David Washington. She is so tall. And they and didn't <laughs> put him in lifts. They didn't put him on an Apple box. They just said, she's tall and he's not tall. And it's fine. Just let her be her. Like, and you don't notice it until he kisses her on the cheek and he no. says something. And I'm like, damn girl. Yeah. I mean, in great Gatsby, uh, I mean, Tobey Maguire is short as shit. So maybe like, it just, that wasn't a good comparison, <laughs> but you really get the, the breadth of her size. Mm-hmm. And she really just played it very well. Where. She wasn't necessarily saying anything other than like she just looked like she had relented to the this is what the, my life is re- now. Yeah, the reality of, this, of her situation. And then you completely see that change on the boat, that empowerment that she feels like I, I just I really did love her character. And I thought that she had probably the most compelling driving force, but everyone else. because She's the only one that isn't acting on plot mechanics. Yeah. Oh, and did you hear? OK, so do you have any idea about Neil Robert Pattinson's character? Oh, that's his name. That's good to know. He's also her son. Shut up. No, we didn't. <laughs> I was so hoping that you hadn't like heard any of these theories. I don't think it's even a theory because apparently. The, no, see, I don't know the theories. Yeah. So apparently he dyed his hair for the film. A lot of times when I hear these stupid theories, I'm like, that's BS. That's such a stretch. But he dyed his hair and he put on an accent to match Elizabeth Debicki's accent. And that's why the first question he asked him is, would you ever take a child hostage? What about a woman? And then when she says, am I going to die? And he's John David Washington says, not if we have anything to say about it. And then Robert Pattinson looks her straight in the eyes and he says, and we have something to say about him. He has no connection to her. And he always goes along with John David Washington's mission to save her. Yeah, he doesn't question it at all. He's one of the only people that doesn't question it. Ives questions it. Everyone else around him questions it, except for Robert Pattinson. It would make sense that Robert Pattinson is her son and the protagonist ended up just mentoring him through his life. I mean, saying it out loud, this is the first time I'm hearing this and I'm trying to think back into instances of the movie. Yeah, I have no idea. Sure. They don't say it, though. That's the thing. I'll go with that. Yeah. And, and that's that's my problem with accepting something like this is that you didn't give me anything at least remotely concrete that he is her son everything has to be surmised the question he asked him would you ever take a child hostage what about a woman again yeah it's an implication it's not concrete well it's true with a movie like this you can't just start making up wild stuff and be like ah why not well and at the end he does ask him are you are you going to go back and check on her in london and he says no and then he looks down and then he looks off to the side and says not even from afar and then he's (laughs) like no it'd be too dangerous and i was like that is kind of a weird question for him to ask. I mean, it would only make sense if he was just basically saying, you lying little hoe, you yeah. was going back and you was picking my ass up. Get in, bitch. We're inverting time. <laughs> oh, God, man. Where does this fall on your Christopher Nolan rankings? You know, I still want to give it a chance. I still want to try to ruminate on it. But I, I really do think that when it comes down to the way that he executed this concept was the worst out of all of his history of executing fairly well, at least at times only passable, but this just didn't work. And again, relative to Nolan's work, where does it fall for you? And I would rather see something like this that swings and misses and swings yes. hard. Yep, It swings. It does not just go up to the plate and stand there, take three strikes and doesn't get the bat off the shoulder. And that is where I think The Dark Knight Rises is the, the bottom of the Christopher Nolan tier. It feels like a movie that didn't really swing. This did not work, but it was a crazy ambitious failure. Now I still think it was a failure. 
and I but it was ambitious. Think, yeah. and I still think it sits below most of everything except for The Dark Knight Rises. But this is so much better and more interesting of a movie than um, I'm going to use a Marvel movie again, because why not? I've been doing it all show than a Thor The Dark World, than a yeah. Dark Knight Rises that just feels lazy and doesn't seem to care. I completely agree with that. I almost feel bad because I hold Nolan to a higher standard than I do to any current blockbuster directors. But the truth is I would choose this over every single Marvel movie and most blockbusters that come out these days. I would still rather sit through an ambitious original film that didn't work than another franchise or pre-existing property that was just rammed through a factory. This is unfair to then put this movie as the savior of cinema during coronavirus times. I was thinking that too. And it really frustrates me that, and not only that, but you can't, the primary audience for this lives in California. That's the truth of the matter. And no theater was opening in California. So for Warner Brothers to make the decision to release on HBO Max based on the failure of this release doesn't say anything about the industry or anything else. It just says about the current state of the world. There is no way that any film could carry that much weight. No, it's unfair. I would agree with you to go back to the ranking. I would agree with you. I like this way more than Dark Knight Rises. I never went back to Dark Knight Rises, whereas this, I sat through it twice, and I still it still didn't feel that much longer. Like I thought I was like, oh, the second time oh, might so feel... Much. The first time, yeah. Just because it gave me a headache. No, the first time it felt <laughs> there was a really, you know, those guys, the, the pitch meeting guys that I showed you. Yeah. They do a really funny video or whatever. And by the end of it, the guy that he's pitching to is like bleeding from the nose. Yeah. <laughs> from the nose. And he's like, do you understand it? And it cuts to him and he's just bleeding from him. He's like, yeah, I think it's easy enough to understand. <laughs> uh, but I'm not going to say don't go and watch this. Watch this because it's fun and it's, like you said, ambitious. And I would still rather see someone try something new and fail at it than seeing the same thing over and over again. 100%. I hope that the performance of this at the box office does not deter studios now from taking swings because already they were already not making movies like this. It's a miracle that this movie exists, to be fair. And only Christopher Nolan could do this. I'm trying to think what other director would be able to make something like this. I cannot think of one off the top of my head. On this scale, with this type of concept, or even just an original concept, really. I mean, maybe Denis Villeneuve. I mean, they gave him Dune, but even then, it's based on a property. It's based on exactly. Yeah, Villeneuve is. If you're going to give anybody a whole bunch of money to do whatever he wants, I want to see what that guy does. Yeah, just piles of money, piles of money, because he's somebody that would also do what Christopher Nolan does: is put the money on the screen for all Mm -hmm. the stuff about Tenant that we just said that we didn't didn't work boy does he put the money on the screen and that's a perfect way of saying it even in the first scene when they blow up the opera house yes I was like, wait what was the budget on this because that looks like a legitimate building like it didn't look like that was a location mm-hmm. and that's seven four i don't know why it's always a 747 they could have done it with a, like a 737 or something and they could have done it with a golf cart like like a drone with like a firecracker on it yeah. and just send that sucker in but yeah no i mean it the 747 alone i mean that was a very spectacular moment and that is what he's good at and it was real yeah he's a practical filmmaker and i will live and die by a practical filmmaker than i ever will a filmmaker who lives in a in a sound studio surrounded by blue and green or led screens now because apparently yeah, mandalorian it's yeah. all led screens but even then mandalorian still does practical they yeah. use miniatures mm-hmm. even like i mean Idiota's puppet. Mm-hmm. i think that 
the way a Christopher Nolan movie looks cinematography wise. I love the way it looks. He's probably yeah. the, my favorite, just purely what the picture Visual, looks yeah. like visually composition wise. He's yes. just, hmm. and I think it's because he loves the movie heat and I love the movie heat. And so oh, that's why felt very much like, heat. Oh yeah. All, all of the movies feel like heat. Oh now yeah. I think about it. Oh yes. Because I've, I've listened to him give talks about this too, where he's like, yeah. this is why I love heat. And I was like, I love heat too, Christopher Nolan. We and you should be friends. Heat does feel like a Christopher Nolan film. Yes. And Michael Mann too. And I love the way Michael Mann shoots. And it's, mm-hmm. it's very similar in that sort of semi-noir sort of feel. And the, and the movies Christopher Nolan makes are noir feeling. Even this movie has a mystery element to it. Because they're action films, but they're shot cinematically i know cinema is a very kind of nebulous pretentious, yeah pretentious word is, nebulous concept, but you can again you can't explain it but you can feel cinema christopher nolan is cinematic whether or not he you know for he delivers yeah for better or worse whether or not he delivers on the actual concepts but even then look i still think he delivered a film that was interesting and that was exciting i want to see i want to see when steven soderbergh made high flying bird on Netflix a couple of years ago. He, it was the movie he shot all on an iPhone. And Nolan was like, hey man, you're Steven Soderbergh. You make great movies. And speaking of a guy who swings too, oh yeah, are you ever going to come back to 35? And Soderbergh's like, well, why would I? I just point and click on this thing on my iPhone and do whatever I want. I would love to see Christopher Nolan make a movie on an iPhone like Soderbergh did. I just want to see what would happen. I'd be fascinated. He'd never do it. Never. But I just want to see what would happen. He would probably be able to get Apple to build him like a 70 millimeter iPhone. <laughs> I want 30K. But Nolan, we, we, we've only made up to 4K. 30K. You are a $2 trillion company. Figure it out. We're on it. I think it's $1 trillion. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. But I think that's a good place to wrap up. I think so too. Go see Tenant. Go see Tenant. Turn, turn the volume down though. Turn it down and then turn it back up and then turn it down and then rewind it and turn it back up. Yeah, exactly. And then take a nap because, God, it's exhausting. But that does it for our review of Tenet. Join us next week where we'll be reviewing the first few episodes of WandaVision on Disney+. Plus. If you saw Tenet, as always, we're curious to hear what you thought. Were we too hard on it? Did you agree or disagree? How does it rank on your list of Nolan films? As we've mentioned before, we are shooting to reach 1,000 subscribers on YouTube to become partners, so if you haven't done so already, please consider subscribing. If you have any ideas for a theme you'd like us to discuss, or a film, TV show, anything pop culture, let us know on YouTube, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find all those links on channel8andahalf.com. That's channel8andahalf, completely spelled out, .com. We have new episodes every Thursday. Until next time, my name is Joe Galino. And I'm Andrew Hanna, and this is Channel 8 and a Half.